they were telling me that I just needed to give it time. I just needed to put the work in. They would help me do that. They wanted me to succeed and they could see a pathway for me to do that and to be as successful as anybody else. And it was probably the first time that I'd really heard that message coming from the people who were teaching me. And it made a huge difference. When you're now in an environment where people are telling you that they can see that success, I had to take away that lens that I'd had previously where, at least in my mind, I was being told I could get so far. Before we get into today's episode, we have a word from our sponsor, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? They will never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help unlock their growth through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development programs, or speaking engagements. We create foundational people over profit environments, the kinds where productivity and innovation soar, culture, inclusion, and equity sit at the heart of operations. Are you ready to step out the box and take your organization to the next level? Contact us today at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Enjoy today's episode. On today's episode of The Leadership, I have the, the Vice President Senior Counsel at one of the leading financial services firms in the world. He's previously worked at Michonne Anconderea, Grenada Media, and I'm really looking forward to talking and diving into the world of Joe Kaede Ali. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? I'm all good. One thing I always like to do is delve into the past of my guests just to understand they got to where they are and to the amazing work that they're doing right now. I guess for you, my, my thing would be when Joe was a teenager what was the dream what did you want to do at that point in time oh my goodness joe as a teenager was very different from joe aged 20 and joe aged 30 etc so i think as a teenager i found economics as a subject and i really enjoyed it and i think it played to my interest in numbers i i didn't mind maths but i wasn't great at algebra and anything that involved letters it seemed to me that math should just be about numbers. So I was fine with that bit. And I also liked history and it seemed as though economics allowed me to combine those two things. So I think I wanted to be something in the world of economics when I first found the subject. And that probably stuck with me until I was about 17. And then probably just at the time I was choosing subjects for university, I suddenly realized how much I'd miss English literature. So Probably at that stage, I was starting to switch from being an economist to being an English teacher. So a bit of a change, as you can yeah. see, I wasn't, a, I wasn't one of these teenagers who'd worked out from an early stage that this is what I was going to pursue and went for it because I'm not doing anything like either of those things now. Wow. Were you, what does it love the, the switch into English? Was that or something you always loved doing? Did you love, I don't know, reading books, writing? What was it about English? I've always loved words and just picking up new words and being able to fit them into sentences and conversations. And I do quite like writing. I'm not creative in any way, shape or form. So don't ask me to write a, a novel or anything like that. I wouldn't want to inflict that on the world. But if you were to ask me to prepare a summary of something or write a commentary on something that I'd read or something that I'd seen, I always used to enjoy doing that in a way that hopefully somebody reading it would find engaging. I think as much as anything, when I reached A-level and I was studying English still at that stage, and I was being asked to write in a bit more depth about the things that I was reading and enjoying, I began to realise that maybe that was something that I would be stronger at than economics, which I still really enjoyed. But perhaps I found that a little bit more limiting than, than English at that stage. I'm sure I wouldn't have done if I'd have carried on with it, but I had to make a choice at 18 as to which path I was going to follow. So English won over on a small margin. 
but so I, I was pleased with it. So I really enjoyed the study I pursued after that. How were your parents like when you told them you were going to study English at uni? I think it's safe to say that there were mixed feelings about it. <laughs> to give a little bit of context, my father's from Lagos. He was a very open and very caring and very thoughtful parents and man generally. But I think he did have the traditional view that I know that a lot of my friends with Nigerian parents have talked about before, which is that you want to have security. And one of the ways of obtaining that security is to become a doctor, become an accountant, become an engineer, become a lawyer, something of that nature. So even though he didn't press me into any of those fields, I think it was always his hope that I would gravitate towards one of them. Whereas my mum, who is Irish, she had finished her studies and then decided that she was going to do voluntary work in India for 10 years during the 1960s and then came back to the UK and felt that she would pick up a career when she returned and had gone into teaching. I think she felt that English was a great subject. It would allow me to express my views and my feelings about the world. And in any event, it wasn't a set in stone thing. You could go to university to explore a subject you love and then choose a career after that. So I think it was very interesting when I mentioned it, but one was very relaxed about it. And you've got into university, that's fantastic. And you're going to study something you love. That's really, really good. And the other reaction was, oh, that's good. I'm, I'm really pleased for you. And I'd hear the telephone conversations with people back in Nigeria. And it would be young Joseph must be going to university now. So is he going to study law? Is he going to study medicine? And the voice would always become a little bit more muffled when explaining it was going to be English. But I think that was an initial reaction and maybe it lasted for a while. But then when dad saw how engaged I was with the subject and he could see the, the types of things that I had to read and the types of essays I was expected to write, he began to realize that there was a real rigor to this that would prove useful in any one of a number of different careers. So he definitely came on board with it and he actually enjoyed reading some of the things that I was writing about because he had a profound love of literature himself. He was, I have to say, and I'm saying this with no bias, he was an incredibly well-read man. I think the fact that he could see that I was getting that from the course that I was studying I think he grew to enjoy the fact that I was doing it as well. We certainly had some fairly interesting debates about my approach to certain texts that he had read as well. So definitely something that he grew to love. And um, I was pleased to be able to share that with him. That's amazing. I mean, having that open-minded approach, regardless of how you initially felt, I think it's something that you still don't hear of that much, where your parents have this idea that this is what we want you to do, and they stick to that. And regardless whether or not they can see what your dad did, how much this could potentially benefit you or how much you want to do something, they still hold on to their ideologies and it can sometimes become a barrier. Where in your case, it was quite the opposite. It seems like it kind of brought you closer and he went through a change of mind rather than you have to change your mind. I think that's right. And I, one of the things that I always try to do, and I, I still try to do that now, is put myself in the other person's shoes. And I think that my relationship with my dad, especially during my late teenage years and on into my twenties and thirties as well, really helped me to do that. And I think for anybody to have done and made the decisions that my dad made and the things that he did. So leaving Nigeria in the 1960s to come to a country that everybody said would be paved with gold. But of course the reality kicks in pretty quickly that that's not the case. And he experienced that in the 1960s and was told that the qualifications he'd already gained in Nigeria didn't really enable him to do anything meaningful in the UK. So he had to retrain and study all over again, right the way from A-levels onwards. And even then, the avenues that he wanted to pursue were not always readily open to him. He was never bitter or angry about that, and he never claimed it was down to prejudice. But he just stated it as a matter of fact that he had looked to pursue certain avenues and they weren't the avenues that were open to him. So he adapted. 
I think when somebody who's been through that experience is concerned for you and tries to advise you in your own path, you have to see that for what it is. And it's coming from a place of love and it's coming from a place of concern. And I could see that he expressed it in that way. And I know that some parents don't necessarily do that. It sounds more dictatorial perhaps, but he never made it sound that way. So we could discuss and debate in an open way, which I think allowed him to then step back and let me make my own decision without feeling as though he lost face. And he certainly didn't, not in my eyes. So it was, it was an interesting time, but I thought, it, I think it did bring us closer together. And certainly he was supportive from the moment I made that decision onwards. So when you moved into studying like medieval history, in fact, you studied history after your um, your BA in English, and then you moved into tech, like web developer. So it's kind of like I was I was reading I was reading back into your history. I was like, so you went from English to history, medieval history to tech. Like how did <laughs> that movement and that switch from one complete opposite to the other is, which it seemed like to me, what was behind that decision and that part of our journey? I can explain and. Even though it's a long story, I'll keep it short for the sake of you and, and anybody listening. I think the one word I would use to describe the connection between all of those things is enjoyment. And I would say that having studied English, which I did really enjoy, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I found fairly early on an area of English that I felt was underrepresented, just generally within academic circles. And yet I really enjoyed it. And I developed an interest for it. And because I showed that interest, I think the people teaching it were willing to devote time and guidance to me, which I really benefited from. So that was medieval English, which is really literature ranging from about 700 AD up to about 1100. And because of the interest in history that I already had, I thought I was combining two really good things here. My, my interest in literature, my interest in history. And because I had to write about it, again, I wanted to bring in this idea of writing in a way that made people interested in what I was communicating. And I think a lot of people see it as a dry subject, but I definitely saw things in it that I thought I could bring out that were really interesting and would give people a window into the past that maybe showed that sometimes people from the past aren't quite so different from us. So I took that approach, really enjoyed trying to do that. And I think that was the link between English and then moving into um, medieval history in particular. It was that connection through medieval English language. What were some of the things that, if you can remember, I know it was a while, was a while ago, but were there some of the things that still stand out to you when you explore the past and how we're not so different because that statement just made for me like really I'm like I'm intrigued by that yeah absolutely so one of the things that I devoted quite a lot of time to was the topic of how you write something in a way to persuade and I think one of the examples of that is that generally speaking a lot of the people in Anglo-Saxon England were in a position where they couldn't read they certainly couldn't write for the most part. So they relied on the most educated people to be able to write down anything that was going to be recorded for posterity. And then they'd require people with a certain le level of education to be able to read. So when we look at stories, for example, from the past, a lot of the stories that people might know of. So for example, there was a feature film about Beowulf a few years ago, and that's probably the most famous Anglo-Saxon stroke Viking text. It was a story that was told many, many times and the poets couldn't read and they couldn't write. So they just remembered these long stories. This is a poem of something like 4,000 lines. They could just remember it and they'd be able to sit down around a campfire or when they were on a journey and just recite this poem to entertain the other people there. But eventually, of course, it was written down and it would probably have been written down by either a monk or by a scribe who had been educated by monks and had some connection with Christianity, which was something that wouldn't have been prevalent across the entire country at that stage. But there was definitely a desire to help convert 
people who may have been of pagan faith or no faith at all into Christianity. So you write the story of Beowulf, which is a heroic tale with no religious connotations at all, but you reframe it and you write it in a way that brings in or alludes to Christian features. So you have the monster lurking in the darkness, which would be a vague reference to the devil, perhaps, rather than the main anti-hero in it, who's called Grendel. You'd have Beowulf, who was bathed in light, who would be, again, he would have been a warrior hero, but he was becoming a more Christian-like figure. So by the time you've ended up reciting this tale, you're starting to give people an introduction into what Christianity might be about. And then you see other texts that come about later, like the rewriting of the story of Exodus from the Old Testament. And that's written about a warrior army marching out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And there's a great battle between the power of good and the power of evil following behind the hero warriors who are reaching the Promised Land. So in one sense, you've taken a warrior story and you've given it a Christian tint. In the other side, you've, give, you've taken a Christian story and you've given it a warrior tint. And by mixing these two things up gently, you're introducing a community to a new way of thinking. And I think that still happens today with the way that people look to persuade, whether it's on social media, whether it's in politics or a number of other things. So I, I think there are parallels. Step must sound naive, but is that manipulation in a sense? Because, or is that more utilizing story form to reach your audience where they are. The reason why I say it's manipulation is like you said, for example, at that point in time, the Christians who had dedication were trying to communicate something. So they took something that was well known and they twisted it in their own way to be able to get to the point they were trying to make and vice versa. So is that a right approach? Cause like you said, it happens in this day and age. So how do you feel about that? I think it's difficult to say whether it was initially intended as manipulation or as a way of spreading the word, if you like. I think it's very difficult for me, even though I'm very interested in the subject, to put myself into the position that somebody would have been in 1,200, 1,300 years ago in terms of reaching the population when there wasn't mass media or any other way of really getting a message across to the masses unless it was by creating stories that people could tell. And I can see with a modern lens why it would look like manipulation and maybe some of the later events that happened in history as well when faith was certainly used as a way of maybe polarising the population. So you think about civil wars, for example, where it can be one faith against another. I think certainly when you look at the 8th and 9th centuries through a 21st century lens, you think to yourself, was that the reason behind doing it? I think that there were probably other factors at play as well. Even if there was that element in there, perhaps it wasn't the overriding factor. But I think historians could look at that and certainly more knowledgeable the people than me have looked at that. And I'm sure they've formed opinions either way, but it's one of the great things about it. We have so little information from that time that you can really create a thesis that would stand up in either direction and then it's open for debate. I think you definitely got me thinking though, oh, something that you just said right now around, depends what lens you're looking at things. And that's always very important to be able to provide you a different perspective. A lot of times we look at things from one particular lens and we stay stuck in that lens and it stops us from being able to, I guess, understand and sometimes appreciate where other people can be coming from, which can then create a barrier and a hindrance. Whereas if you change your perspective or you're even willing to listen and, and gather more context and more perspective, it can definitely be beneficial. I think that's absolutely right. And I think one other thing that I've maybe observed is that sometimes you can take the lens that has been appropriate in one context and you can bring it into another context where perhaps it's not so appropriate or what you're filtering on one side isn't there to be filtered on the other. So I've certainly had times in my life where perhaps I've had a certain lens based on a life experience of my own. And then I've taken that lens into another environment where 
that issue I encountered previously just isn't there. And yet, because I'm still looking through a lens which is now long, no longer appropriate, it's just not relevant anymore, it probably is still, initially at least, clouding the way in which I view something. That could be quite negative. So if you take a negative experience from your life and you assume everything in life is going to be like that, and then you go into an environment where actually it's completely not like that, it can take you a while to appreciate that you're now in a different and much better environment because you are influenced by that lens that you've been looking at things through for quite some time. So again, perhaps one of the things that I've learnt over a long period of time that I try to keep with me and I try to share with others is that don't always judge your current circumstances on something that may have happened before. Those are very powerful words. Those are very, very powerful words. It's interesting as when we're recording this right now, it's December and we're heading towards the next year. And you was in that period of time where people are like, oh yeah, new year, new me. I've got new goals, new challenges. And I think that statement you just made around when you're thinking forward to the future, you can't necessarily think based on the, I'm going to call it the baggage that you're carrying or the past that you have. You can't necessarily use that to cloud your way of thinking because if you do, you're not necessarily going to move forward. But if you change the way you're thinking and you shift that perspective and you look from a completely different focus, then that allows you to be like, okay, I can dream forward and I can move forward rather than just staying where I am right now. I think that's exactly it. And it's hard. It's, it's really hard. I, well, I found it really hard, I should say. If somebody has a life experience that is punctuated by a common theme, and that common theme is a difficult one, then to open yourself up to be in a position where you're going to set that to one side and give a new group or a new environment the benefit of the doubt until it proves you wrong is a very hard thing to keep doing, especially if on one or two occasions you find that you've opened yourself up only to find the same thing happening to you again. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. But I think the destructive part on the other side is that if you don't open yourself up and you remain partly closed to those new opportunities, you run the risk of those opportunities passing you by. It is one of the really difficult issues to address where you want good things to happen, but you don't necessarily open yourself up fully to those good things happening in a new environment. So I think it does take a certain amount of courage perhaps, and maybe a leap of faith initially at least, but it is something that I, I've tried to do. And maybe I've just been very fortunate in that it seems to have worked for me so far, but I do try to invite others to do it when I get the opportunity to do that, or if I see them perhaps acting in a way that suggests that maybe they're not. Can you share any um, experiences or examples that you've had where you've had to change your perspective and create a, a space for you that allows you to, to step into new opportunities to rise? I'd say probably the biggest one that I had was, well, the first one that I can remember that was huge for me was the switch between doing A-levels at sixth form and going to university and studying English. And I think there were quite a few big shifts at that stage. I'd been in school in South East London for, by that stage, 10 or 11 years. I was in a very comfortable environment in terms of the people I was surrounded by. I was fairly familiar with the teachers. Everything was safe. Everything was comfortable. But looking back on it, I think one thing that punctuated through my secondary school experience was that not necessarily about me, but about other people who maybe I've resonated with. There's X. Well, what's X going to do today? Is he going to do any work or is he going to sit there and do nothing? Is he going to cause trouble? Is he going to be well behaved? And generally speaking, I was always pretty well behaved because I had parents who would come down on me like a ton of bricks if they even heard one slightly negative thing. Being well behaved was just something that I grew up with and it wasn't an issue for me to be well behaved in school or, or, to, or to do my work or anything like that. 
there were other people that I associated with who I thought were good people who were being tarred with this brush of they're not necessarily going to make very much of themselves. And I think it became part of a part of an ongoing theme. Well, if they're not going to make anything of themselves or any of us who are here going to achieve anything like that. So you, you become part of that environment where maybe you don't expect the most for yourself. And I did reasonably well at A-level and managed to get into university. But I think it was probably within my first few months at university when I realized the leap between what I had been doing and what I now needed to do in order to achieve anything was huge. And I was floundering in a very big way in terms of just being able to keep up. I was trying my best and I wasn't looking to give up, but there was a huge gap between me and some of the other people there. But the people that I was surrounded with now weren't saying, well, you're only going to achieve so much, so don't get your hopes up, which is probably the message I'd been taking previously. They were telling me that I just needed to give it time. I just needed to put the work in. They would help me do that. They wanted me to succeed and they could see a pathway for me to do that and to be as successful as anybody else. And it was probably the first time that I'd really heard that message coming from the people who were teaching me, or at least it was the first time I heard it for a while. It made a huge difference. When you're now in an environment where people are telling you that they can see that success, I had to take away that lens that I'd had previously, where at least in my mind, I was being told I could get so far. And I had to give these, pe these new people the benefit of the doubt. They said they could help me get to where they thought I could achieve. And I had to give them the benefit of that doubt. And part of me thought, well, maybe I could just stay in my own comfortable little zone and just stay quietly in the background and nobody needs to know that I'm here. But I had to start approaching them and asking them to help me with things, which again was something completely alien to me. And I think ultimately it made a huge difference. I don't think that I would have ended up getting the grades that I did. And I don't think the opportunities I then had afterwards would have been available to me if I hadn't taken that leap of faith maybe in the first few months of my course at uni. It's always very scary, isn't it? When not just, I think sometimes people think when you take a leap of faith, it's just the initial decision. It's that point afterwards where you made that decision and you step into it. Like you said in your case, and you start to flounder. And it's then that doubt really, really kicks in like, what have I done? <laughs> Did I make the right decision here? Oh, and it's that space where people tend to step backwards. People can actually make a decision to step forward. Sometimes a lot easier than people think, but it's the aftermath of what do you do when those doubts and those fears come up? And, and like you just talked about in your case, you had people around you who believed in you and you were able to lean into that and they were able to encourage you to kind of enable you to, to push through and obviously lead to other different things. But that's a really um, powerful story. And I'm interested, that experience that you had then, would you say it had a massive impact on the way that you have navigated your career from being at university to working in web space to then becoming a lawyer? and doing what you do right now? I think it has. I think that perhaps one of the things that I suffered from quite a lot, and I probably still have an element of it, is imposter syndrome. So this idea that, well, I shouldn't be here, but I'm doing this, and somebody soon is going to come over and tell me that you shouldn't be doing this. Why are you, why are you doing this? I probably did have that for the first few months of that, degree course because I just did not fit in in terms of my ability to work at the standard of, of, of some of the others. And I think I've always been in an environment where if I sit down quietly and do my work pretty well, that's going to get me towards the top end of the class anyway, just because I've done the work. That, that's almost enough to get you to the top end of the group. Suddenly I was in an environment where everybody was doing the work and some of them were, to be blunt, doing it as a much better standard than I was at that stage. So I think the imposter syndrome could have kicked in in a big way and just left me, left me in my corner. But I think that the decision I made, and it wasn't a conscious, I'm going to fight imposter syndrome here. I didn't really know that imposter syndrome existed at that stage. But I think it's allowed me now to manage that side of things ever since. It's given me a way, a, a way out of imposter syndrome, an alternative view that will allow me to say imposter syndrome doesn't work for me. 
So I now could bypass that and just get on with things. So it's been definitely helpful for that. I think the other thing it did was it made me realize that if I'm passionate about something and I enjoy it, then I should pursue that. And sometimes good people who are willing to guide me will gravitate towards me or allow me to gravitate towards them because we share a common interest. I know one of the things we've talked about before is mentorship and how important it is. And I think that whereas I've never consciously gone out to find somebody who I felt was impressive and therefore should be my mentor, I ended up finding people who were hugely impressive, but it was more because we had a common interest and could start talking about that. We had a reason to relate to each other rather than just being about me pointing to them and saying, I want you to do this for me, please. So it probably did influence the way that I approached other people who, as it turned out, have been hugely influential in the way in which my career has been shaped. And I'd say it probably also has allowed me to be a bit more courageous, maybe about making changes. You, you talked about the shift from medieval history to web development and then from web development to law. I think probably that experience at 19 when I ended up at university probably did help me to make those changes and feel a little bit more comfortable about doing it. How did you go from web development to law? I would say that there was a, a stop in the middle, which was publishing. And in very quick order, I really enjoyed my medieval history course and I did teach for a little bit, but I soon realized that I probably wouldn't be able to make a, a full-time career out of it. So I shifted into publishing and really enjoyed that as well. And it gave me the opportunity to work with people who had similar interests to me. It gave me the opportunity to learn business skills, which I thought were very, very useful and quite interesting. So I started off in sales and marketing and then got the opportunity to get involved in this new area for the company I worked for, which was web development. And it was mainly about the ability to either sell materials or to provide additional resources for people that had already bought something that we had published. And nobody else in the company knew anything about this. So I had an interest. So I decided to just go and learn about this thing called HTML by myself and see what it was all about. And then I was able to explain a little bit about it to people who had an interest in this publishing company doing more. And they said, you're the only person here who knows anything about it. Therefore, you are, you are now our web developer. And you could do that in those days. And I said to them, I don't know very much, but I'm willing to learn more. And they said, you know, at least this much more than anybody else here. Therefore, you are our expert. And that's the way that it developed. So I studied more. They encouraged me to study. They definitely looking back on it now, really helped my growth by just allowing me to learn more and to find my feet while being secure in a job. I would say that I probably earned my title after about maybe a year to 18 months of learning frantically whilst on the job. And interestingly, it was about that time that Granada Media, who you mentioned in the introduction, were looking to acquire the company that I initially worked for because the company I worked for had content. Granada Media obviously had an absolutely huge presence in terms of media, online delivery, television, etc. There was a useful combination of providing the content on the one side and the platform with which to share it on the other. And of course, the company I worked for merged into Granada Media with me as their resident web developer. So as a result of that, I was able to sit with their developers who were hugely experienced and they were very generous as well in allowing me to learn from them. So that's really how that circle completed. But as part of web development comes content deals, negotiating content for rights and I was the only person who could do that because I was the only person who knew what the content really meant. So I took the decision 
after a few years of doing it that I needed to go away and learn what these contracts were really about. I could understand what was written in them, but I didn't know what I was leaving out. And that's hugely important. So I decided I would take a couple of years out to study law, maybe with a view to coming back into a similar type of role, but this time knowing a bit more about the contract side, or maybe about pursuing other things. But that was really the, the trigger for me starting to study law. And of course, once I did, my career took a slightly different path after that. I think it's a quote by Einstein, I could be completely wrong, but it's called, I think he said, I have no special talent. I'm only passionately curious. And what he just described to me feeds precisely into that because it's like you were curious about web development and you studied a little bit, which no one else was willing to, which allowed you to, to land this position. And now it's because, okay, now I'm doing that and I'm signing in all these contracts. I want to learn more about these contracts. And then you leaned a bit more into that and that led into a new career. What is that? Is that thirst for knowledge? Where does that curiosity come from? My goodness. I'd say that I've always had an interest in why things are the way that they are. I think a lot of people have an interest in how things work. And they become, some, sometimes they become scientists if they're interested in the way that physical things work or how physical things interact with one another. I think some people become mathematicians if they're just interested in why certain types of formula always work in a certain type of pattern. I probably had a slight interest in each of those areas, but I think my main interest was in why is my situation the way that it is and where do I fit into the world? And that's probably more of a, that's probably something that lends itself more to maybe, for example, literature or history or maybe social sciences. So I always had a, a certain leaning towards those areas and I was lucky enough to be able to explore them. I, I don't think everybody is lucky enough to be able to take the time out to go to university. I think some people maybe feel that they need to start earning money the second that they finish their school years. And I had friends who fitted into that category, who I would say were also very knowledgeable, intelligent, curious, and generally just very bright people. And they maybe took a slightly different route. I had the opportunity of studying at university, and I think that's probably where my eyes were really opened. I do see that as being the pivotal moment for me personally. And I think most people have one of those moments when I would look back on that. I would say that the encouragement I've had from others subsequently has then fed that curiosity. So when I'm told by lecturers at university, look, you could really do interesting things here if, if that's what you want to do and you can put your mind to it and we'll help you. Or when I worked in my publishing company and they said, okay, you know, you may not know that much compared to the most knowledgeable web developers, but you know a little bit. And we can help you learn a lot more. When you start getting into an environment where people are willing to give you that opportunity, I think even if you have a spark of curiosity in you, it will grow. And I have been very fortunate in that. But I think part of it as well is that I've never really directed myself towards, I'm going to be doing this by this age, or I'm going to go for this particular route and nothing is going to shift me from it. I've maybe deviated slightly from a particular route. Some people might say that I meandered when I was in my 20s, but I've always put interest and something that I knew I would work really hard at as a priority to see where it would get me. And I've been very fortunate that it's led me into a career now where, again, I'm given the opportunity to be curious I work with people who are intelligent and are willing to feed that curiosity and they have curiosity of their own and they ask me to help them with things that I can help them with in terms of that. And I think you create a virtuous circle. You, you surround yourself with people who are interested, who are curious, who are knowledgeable, and it all leads to a, a good end result. I think that's where it came from. And I'm very lucky that I'm still able to feed that curiosity now and hopefully share that with other people who maybe benefit from it too. What's been the most enjoyable experience you've had as a lawyer? Ooh, I think there have been a few. Oh, okay. I like that. <laughs> I, think there, I, I think there have been a few. It's very, very hard to, 
it's very very hard to to pinpoint but i'll give you i'll give you a first one that happens quite a lot which is probably one of the reasons why i still practice law and enjoy it i think generally people come to lawyers looking for help now it may be that they want help in terms of they have an idea and they want to move that idea forward I think sometimes they come to a lawyer because they're in a desperate situation and they just don't know what to do. And they're looking for somebody who maybe has experience of how things work, which is one of my, one of my great interests. And they want to know how does this thing work and where do I fit into that? I think the key skill that a lawyer has to have is the ability to provide people with information in a way that is accessible and useful for them. And I really enjoy being able to see that look on people's faces when they'll ever go, oh, so that's how it works. Or, oh, right, so if I take my idea and I just tweak this slightly, it's going to fly. Or, oh, I had no idea that this opportunity was available to me and I thought I was in real trouble here. So just that epiphany moment when people can see something that was in front of them the whole time, but they just couldn't translate it. And I'm given the opportunity to do that on a daily basis. And I think that being able to work with people in a way that allows me to see that is something that I do really enjoy. Wow. I like that. It's, um, yeah, I think it's not, it's not, it's not a way I have thought about law before from that perspective which is why i always always love speaking to people in that in the field to hear how they see things because from the outside in it's like when you think about law and depending on what it is you're doing for example but regardless generally speaking like you say it's a lot of reading understanding a lot of hours and time spent in it but the way you just described it it's it doesn't sound like that at all (laughs) it sounds completely different it sounds very much more exploratory and being able to feed your curiosity, but you also have the expertise that you actually, so um, it's got me actually thinking. I should just say that all of the reading and the research and all of those things are absolutely there as well. And not that I would in any way, shape or form uh, compare myself to either a musician or to somebody who's achieved a certain level in sport, for example, but if somebody is performing in a concert and they do it in a way that means that people appreciate what they do and they show that appreciation at the end by either giving them a round of applause or telling them afterwards or whatever, or a sports person manages to achieve something and they're interviewed afterwards and told that they did really well. I'm sure that's the bit that the musician and the sports person really loves as well, but it doesn't mean that they haven't done hundreds of hours of work leading up to that moment just to get that little bit of recognition and I would say the same thing about the epiphany look that I see in people's eyes when I'm able to explain something to them in a way that hopefully relates to their experience it's it's great to see that but I've still had to do all of that work in the background in order to achieve it so I wouldn't want to give the impression that law is all about that there's a lot else that goes on in the background I think Speaking of experiences, one thing you mentioned earlier on was having people believe in you really helped you in your journey. But in the law profession, as as a black man, I know we hear so many different reports of how it's not the easiest to be able to navigate. My sister's a lawyer, and so I will have some personal experience listening to her share some of um some of her stories. So how have you has that been your experience? And how have you found it being able to navigate? from when you first started out to your time at Mission Condorea to what you do right now to quite a senior position as well. Yeah, it's something that I've always been aware of. I think that if you look at the legal profession as a whole and you see the breakdown in diversity generally, you would have to say that there at least up until now, has been something that has led to the legal profession being very much skewed towards a particular gender historically and ethnicity as well in the past. 
I think it's changing now, but I'll maybe come back to that a bit later. I think looking back on my experience, trying to go into everything with an open mind and resetting that lens so that I don't necessarily carry my historical experiences with me meant that when I started studying law, it seemed it seemed moderately diverse. I would say in terms of gender diversity, it was very good. I would say in terms of maybe ethnic diversity, I didn't see very many black people on my course at that stage. Maybe there were three of us out of 150. And that's a particular cohort for a particular year. It may have been slightly better in other years or worse even, I don't know. But it's it was certainly noticeable. But being on the course, I didn't feel as though I was treated any differently to the other students, which gave me encouragement. The experiences I had with being mentored and the opportunities I had to do voluntary work while studying gave me positive experiences. I think it was interesting that the voluntary work I did often involves sections of the community that perhaps I resonated with more than the students I was studying with. And I think it was interesting for the communities that I worked in on a voluntary basis to see me as a black person and a lawyer trying to support them in the initiatives and the work that they were trying to do. So I think that there were combinations in play there that made it a very rewarding and interesting experience. So I didn't feel that I was in any way held back because of my ethnicity, although it was curious to me that there were so few of us. That wasn't necessarily a problem, and it certainly wouldn't have dissuaded me from recommending law as a field for other people to study. In terms of my getting into Mishkondorea, which was my first permanent job, I had work experience in various places and thoroughly enjoyed that. And I didn't feel as though I was being looked upon negatively in any of the places that I went to. Again, of course, I had to hand in my CV and be interviewed for those opportunities. They would have been able to work out my ethnicity from seeing my name on the top of the CV. So it's not surprising to me that when I finally got into any of the positions that I had, they were very open, very welcome and treated me as I would expect to be treated because they probably had a very good idea of who they were getting when they invited me for interview anyway. I will say that I made a lot of applications for jobs within the law, and I have no reason to assume that any of those were rejected because of my ethnicity. Absolutely no reason to believe that, and I wouldn't want to create that as as an excuse. But there is a thing within law about culture and fitting into the team and wanting a certain type of person in order to fit in with that team. Now, historically, that might have been that you went to a certain type of university, or it might have been that you pursued a certain type of route. So, for example, you did your A-levels from 16 to 18, you went straight into university at 18, you graduated at 21, and by 23, you were a trainee lawyer at that firm, and they could then mould you into the person that they wanted you to be. And it may well have been that other parts of my life experience, not studying law until I was 30, for example, might have made them think, he's not our type of candidate. So for that reason, maybe I, I, I wasn't the ideal person for them. It may just have been that they felt that academically or in terms of my interests, there were other people who were more suitable. But All I can say is that it took me a sizable number of applications and probably the best part of two years of constantly writing applications before I got the opportunity that I did. And I got there through a slightly different route again. I approached Mishcon for the first time asking if I could be a paralegal. And that's somebody who's normally qualified in terms of their academic side, but they haven't qualified as a solicitor. And we would do the general work, for example, creating court bundles, running from court to court, etc., just assisting with a little bit of more routine documentation as and when the opportunity arose as well. And Nishcon heard about what I'd been doing, felt that I would be good for that, 
and offered me a job as a paralegal. They got to see me working in their environment and felt that I would be suitable as a trainee and offered me a training contract after I went through their recruitment program. So certainly, again, my experience working at Mishcon was they saw me as somebody who was willing to put in the work and fitted in very well with what they did. And I never felt that I had any particular points to prove or issues to overcome while I was working there. So again, I think in that path, it took me a while to get to the right place. But when I did, I was very fortunate. I think it's it's that willingness to be able to do something different. So rather than being like this a traditional route, okay, that might be the path for most people, but I'm willing to do something different to be able to get to where I want to get to. Because if I can get into the spaces where I can demonstrate that my work can speak for itself and I can demonstrate to them that I actually have something to offer, then that makes a massive difference. Is being able to get to the space where people can see what you have to offer rather than worrying about what that title could, or that position could potentially look like. And that's what you kind of did with you going down that paralegal route. I think that's right. And I've explained it in shorthand. There were intervals along the way where I was able to pick up more experience as well. So one opportunity that I had was at a company that's now called Genworth Financial. It used to be part of the GE group. So again, an American company. And I had the opportunity of working there for six weeks after, immediately after I finished my law course. And it was really about just being able to spend maybe half the day doing a bit of filing and then using their computers to just enhance my CV and send out applications to law firms while I, during the day while I was in the office. And I didn't think that was a good idea. I thought if I could spend the whole day learning about what was going on in this company, and then I could just stay up a bit later at night and do those CVs and send out those applications, then I'd pick up twice as much. And they, they paid me, but they paid me relative to what I could actually provide. So initially, it probably wouldn't sound like very much, but it was enough and it gave me a great opportunity to learn more. And I think when they realized that I wasn't there just to get six weeks of work experience on my CV and disappear, they thought they could maybe use me in other ways. And I started to creep into their procurement department in terms of their contracts. I was able to speak occasionally to the employment lawyer just to find out what the developments were there. And again, I was just really, really nosy and just wanted to find out what was going on and why it happened like that. And I ended up staying there. They renewed my contract every six weeks, but I ended up staying there for two years. And I learned something new pretty much every day during that two-year period. And the longer I stayed, the more that the more senior people in those areas would talk to me and just find out, how are you doing? So what's your plan now? Are you, st- are you still looking to become a, a qualified lawyer? Are you happy sticking around with us for another six weeks? And it, it became the running joke. It's coming up to about six weeks again, Joe, are you going to stick around with us or are you going to look to do something else? And my view always was until that training contract opportunity came along, I was learning in this environment and I was going to make the most of it that I could. And on one occasion, the CEO of the company came into the office. And interestingly enough, I've been very fortunate again to work in organizations that have had senior leaders that I can relate to because they're black. And the CEO of Genworth at that time was black. He wouldn't sit down for hours talking to me, of course not, but he'd see me around and he'd say hello to me. And we'd bump into each other in the corridor or making a cup of coffee. And he'd ask me how I was doing. And to have somebody at that level of seniority and to be somebody that I could relate to who was just interested in the fact that I existed at that point in time was a real confidence boost. And I think that at a corporate level, that's just one really simple thing that companies can do to make people feel included. I certainly try to do it but it meant an awful lot to me. So again, I'm, I'm talking in great detail here about little routes along the way that I had, but they all meant a huge amount to me. So I found them really valuable. The little 
adds up. It's never big leaps that most people think progress or success comes from. It's the little by little by little that compounds over time that actually then leads into what you're trying to get to. So yeah, that's why I'm like, keep on talking. They're like, yes, this is quite good. So people can know and understand that actually your route doesn't have to look like everyone else's route. But you need to be willing to also, I guess, think outside the box and do things differently and feed your curiosity, which seems to be that repeated pattern coming in the way throughout everything that you've kind of talked about. So the more you feed your curiosity, the more you can learn about new opportunities and then you can step into the opportunities when they arrive. And it's like a step-by-step plan that you've been able to achieve over your career. And I guess with the very career that you have in the different fields and different institutions that you've you've worked with how do you define leadership i think i've seen some fantastic leaders in the various organizations i've worked for and they've all got a very different style and i guess that sometimes the leadership style that they've displayed has been influenced in part by the industry that they work in i wouldn't necessarily say that a publishing company is going to be exactly the same as a financial services organization. And similarly, a law firm is probably going to be quite different from a university. But I think one common theme that I've seen is that leaders are well known for being able to speak and to be able to bring a group of people with them when they speak. But I think that each of the leaders that I've had that I've really resonated with have also been able to listen. And they've been also able to demonstrate that they've heard what somebody says. So it can be a very simple thing by listening to somebody and then saying, just to make sure that I've heard you, you're telling me this, is that right? And they're interested enough to make sure that they've heard you correctly. I think sometimes it's not even realizing that a conversation I had with a leader necessarily sunk in, but then three months later, that leader will say to somebody else, I had a conversation with somebody a little while back and they told me, and then I, I'm thinking to myself, hang on, that was me. I think I said that. <laughs> and it's that piece of feeling as though somebody has actually taken the time and the care to hear what you've said. And it wasn't just about them looking good by talking to you for a couple of minutes and then wandering off and completely forgetting it. So I think the listening piece is so important. And I don't know how a leader can grow unless they get the full picture. I'm sure that people more senior than them will be quite happy to give them a view on their performance, but why not hear things from people all around them and and have that more rounded view? So I'd say that. I think maybe the other thing as well that I've taken from some of the leaders I've worked with is that if you're trying to get someone or a group of people to follow a particular path, it always helps if you're able to either lead from the front and be willing to do that yourself, or at least be able to demonstrate the fact that this is a path that you have taken in the past and it was beneficial for this reason. Because I think do as I say, but not necessarily as I do, is something that's very, very hard to do and maintain credibility. So I always try to I always try to get involved in projects saying, look, I'm really happy to be involved with this and I'm happy to I'm happy to help as much as you would like me to help, but I would like you to take it forward. And generally I think that's well received by the people that I work with because they don't feel as though they're just having something foisted upon them, but it's actually something that's coming from a place of care because it's something you've done yourself or it's something you're willing to remain engaged with. Love that. As we're just coming to the end run, I just want to say thank you. The experiences that you've shared right all the way from inception, actually, at A-level all the way to now and watching you navigate and going through different careers, actually, for me, is is very inspiring. It just goes to show that, I think it was yesterday, I was, I was having a conversation with someone around how much operating in different organizations actually helps you to gain so much more perspective. And sometimes people think it's, oh, I need to elevate in one one space and keep on rising up when, and they're not willing to try something different. Now, actually, you just demonstrated that you can go to different paths and different routes and it can lead you as long as you know what's true to you, which is what you've kept on chasing. That's what your definition of success has been around 
you honoring what's inside of you rather than anyone else's agenda or anything else. So that's been quite great to hear. And I'm sure there's so many things that you shared today that people will be inspired by. So just thank you for your time and thank you for the work that you are you're doing as well in terms of being a voice in in that space and even the mentoring mentoring stuff that you do in the programs that you get involved in as well. No, it's an absolute pleasure. And anything that I can do to help in the way that I've been helped in the past is just giving something back. And I think that's really important. But thank you for everything that you're doing as well. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I thoroughly enjoyed it. This is Everyday Leadership and I'll see you next week.